You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, part of the Tokyo Beat Network. There's something going on in semi-happy valley that I don't approve of. It's called Whiplash City now, Monty boy. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies and a franchise one film at a time. We're looking at some live action films based on uh, the the uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon and the sort of shorts therein. This time we were looking at a 1999 movie that, yes, did get a theatrical release, but it popped up on video pretty soon. In fact, I worked at a blockbuster video when this came out, and I'll, I'll describe how poorly it, it rented. Uh, Dr. Not Dr. Doolittle. Fuck me. <laughs> Dudley Do-Right, uh, directed and written by Hugh Wilson, who does a movie that is sung about in our theme song with Mark with a C. He, of course, was the director of the original Police Academy. So, uh, with me is Thrasher. When I'm calling you. That's Slim Whitman classic and Alex. In Australia, we got a spinoff. It's called Dudley Didgeridoo. Very good. Right, Matt, and, um, I got I to yeah. take you to task because that is erroneously credited to Slim Whitman. I see. He did a he very made it famous. famous, very well-known American yeah. cover uh, but the song, uh, it's 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 known as uh, Indian Love Call. It's from 1924. It was originally written for the operetta Rosemary, uh, which was a which was a, a stage play about a love triangle uh, in Canada in the Rocky Mountains, like in the 1800s, involving a Mountie. I see. So that that explains uh, its appropriateness. And I learned during research for this that Brendan Fraser is half Canadian. Oh, really? So, Which half? The yeah. top or the bottom? Um, I believe the the mother. So you can uh, say whatever half it is you please, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's one of those things where the the, the whole reason this movie got made is. Um, you know, this came out in U.S. through Universal Pictures, was the distributor in the in the states. Uh, but uh, a year or so before this, you had something that was a spinoff of another J. Ward property, live action, also happened to star Brendan Fraser, George of the Jungle, which made over uh, over three times its budget. And what? so, because of that, yeah, George of the Jungle '97 uh, live action, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of 55 million, made 174.4 million. Yeah. Oh no! It was huge, and and yeah, there yeah. was and, and and because the Jay Ward cartoon movie rights were kind of sold piecemeal, it led to a whole lot of Jay Ward based uh, movies getting put into production. But this is it's like this and the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie, which we'll be talking about next week. I believe are the only full films that came out of the fallout of George of the Jungle. Funny bit of trivia: right. I had a bomb yeah. named George of the Jungle in high school. Oh. Huh. And uh, also, fun fact, I suppose, Weirdo Yankovic did a cover of George of the Jungle on his album in 3D. However, or excuse me, it might have been um, the Dear to be Stupid album. It was one of those two. Uh, 
one of his first uh, three albums anyway. And uh, however, that song was not used in the movie for whatever reason. But oh. uh, but yeah, Brendan Fraser, this one, George of the Jungle, came out two years before in 97. Uh, given his age, you know, he must have grown up with these cartoons on TV and had some affinity for the characters. But Dudley Do-Right, uh, and I might have mentioned this in the show before, I, you know, as an avid reader of Entertainment Weekly back in the day, I don't, nowadays, I think they, they've made it either into a monthly magazine or maybe they just do special issues now and it's online only. Um, but they had said originally the producers for Dudley Do-Right wanted uh, good old Frasier himself, Kelsey Grammer, as Dudley Do-Right. Ah, the fact that he is not Canadian, um, and he's he's uh, you know probably would have to use more of a stunt doubles than Brendan Fraser did in this picture. Ah, that, that's just, just, I mean I realize they want to go with him as like a name, but if you're gonna have Kelsey Grammer in this yeah. movie, he should be he should be playing Inspector Fenwick. That's who you put yes. Kelsey Grammer into, right? Or you could even have he could be a good Snidely Whiplash. I think you could do. Ooh, yeah. He'd he'd be too good as Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> I, I I could see that, sure. And you do have cameos in this movie, and that um, you know, and, and this is back in the day when you would get kind of mid-budget pictures where everyone could get paid a, if not a huge salary, a decent amount. I mean, this was twenty-two million. Uh, it seems like the the writer director got five million to do this. The the main actors probably got a million or a million and a half, perhaps two million a piece. Uh, and, and this cast is better than I thought it would be. You know, you have Eric Idle from Monty Python in a pretty meaty supporting part. Brendan yeah. Fraser is the lead. Sarah Jessica Parker is Nell, the romantic interest. And you have Alfred Molina as the evil Snidely Whiplash. It's it's really strange. Like, ev- everybody in this movie is too good for this movie, but it <laughs> helps the movie. And, and this this is during the period where Eric Idle would appear in anything. So if you were yes. doing a family movie and you wanted to class it up, you just go straight to Eric Idle. Also, Casper comes to mind. Another uh, Boris and Natasha connection. We got Alex Rocco. Mo Green. Yeah. Mo Green's back. Mm-hmm. Nobody right, makes a fool of Mo Green. As the uh, chief chief of the tribe of Brooklyn Indians, which I enjoyed that joke. I mean, yeah, there's also the writing, I think, is a bit better than this movie perhaps deserves. It, it doesn't help the cover of this shows, admittedly, a joke from the show where uh, he is, uh, Dudley Wright is riding the horse backwards. <laughs> and it's this weird Photoshop thing that looks a bit Cronenbergian or, or just disturbing <laughs> and off. But before we start on that, I mean, Dudley Wright, it started as a one of the interstitial cartoons on Rocky and Boinkle, starting with the second season. Um, I did not grow up ever see, it seems like all the repeats that I grew up with were all of season one. So I, I don't, although I know the name Dudley Do-Right, I'm not terribly familiar with the character, well, other than that I keep on getting Snidely Whiplash confused with the, the bad guys on the Wacky Races Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Muttley the Dog and uh, the other guy. Dick Dastardly. Um, Thank you, Dick so Dastardly. I- so actually, I kind of want to talk about that because in syndication packages for Rocky and Bullwinkle, the Dudley Do-Right segment was very often cut. Uh, and mm. that was for two reasons. One was for time, uh, because, you know, regrettably advertising encroaches on actual programming uh, on, on you know television. Uh, but the other reason is that when, when Rocky and Bullwinkle was still a relatively new show, 
they had a really hard time syndicating it in Canada because of Dudley Do-Right. And they talk about this mm. on a documentary that I mentioned many episodes back called like of Moose and Men, which is a, about the history of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. And there were a lot of networks in Canada like, we can't show this. It mocks the Royal Canadian Mounted <laughs> Police. Like, Oh, come on. Like the, uh, I mean, they they are they are part of Canada's sort of law enforcement and cultural identity. So I can, yeah. but, but at the same time, you got you, you you need to take the piss every now and then. Right. And, I, and you know, it's not totally only that, you game. have to con- you have to consider how many dozens, if not hundreds, of people enrolled in the Royal Canadian wow. Mounted Police because of Dudley Wright. There had to be people watching the show well, I, as a kid that later decided to join the force. Yeah, totally. Do we know that that happened, though? I'm sure. I don't know one, that it happened, but I think it's quite likely. Right. That, there has to be a case here and there. Well, I mean, I, it, although admittedly, like any time, like, like you, you'll hear this like all the time where like somebody like does. Like, well, well, like, like if like when Paul, like everyone who's made a movie has, has, has a story like this where like, you know, where where like you know Paul Verhoeven will will be out somewhere and someone will say oh Paul I loved your movie RoboCop that's the reason why I became a cop and he'll just <laughs> look at them aghast and go no that's not what the movie was about no I wanted to make a great Dutch film about um uh, boobs and and penises that's his exact yeah. opposite takeaway to what <laughs> I was doing right I mean there, there's along those lines uh, also Verhoeven related as it turns out there's a a really good documentary about um, kind of how showgirls has changed in critical perception over wow. years called You Don't Know Me, Know Me being the name of the main character of the film. And uh, it, it it talks, uh, it, they have a, an interview with Kyle McLaughlin where he says, don't let anyone fool you that we were trying to make a satire or a spoof on set. This was filmed as something that was meant to be completely serious and kind of a uh, an X-rated remake of A Star is Born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And whether, you know, the, I don't think that really comes across, um, but, it, you know, you're bringing back the same uh, uh, Joe Esterhaus, who's, who's a, a really good writer uh, who did Basic Instinct. And, you know, they're trying to do another one of those and it just didn't, it didn't you work say, out quite the way they wanted. You say good, I say successful. I also uh, just right. think there's yes. like a level of like everything is just elevated in Paul Verhoeven's like English language movies. Always. To a yes. point where it's like, that's kind of his M.O. It's like when people talk about Spider-Man 3 being like the worst. I'm like, that's like the most Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, if you <laughs> ask me. Well, and I think it makes it stand out as a more distinctive superhero movie than um, the, the first Spider-Man, while feeling a lot like the, the early Stanley Stan Ditko um, comics, feels very generic, I think, in a, in a lot right. of other ways. It, it doesn't have the directorial stamp. But I mean, with this here, Dudley Do Right from the director of Police Academy, I think uh, he also wrote the script. I think one thing this movie does good is it knows its audience. It's going for very little kids. You don't have jokes that are, are kind of. You might have some jokes for mommy or daddy, as uh, as Thrasher likes right. to put it. But but you don't have things that are I, I think just not necessarily appropriate, like in the Cat in the Hat movie where you have the cat making jokes about the mom being a hoe. Right. Dirty yeah. Hoe. And that's the just that's cheap, right. You know. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, the thing, uh, one, I think my one, one of my uh, issues I have with the film is that there's a lot of things in the Dudley Do Right cartoons. What makes the Dudley what what makes the Dudley Do Right cartoons funny are things that just don't translate to live action. Like, you know, the woman tied up on the train tracks, and he diverts the train tracks, and the train goes off the rail. You know what I mean? Like, 
a lot of the funny, weird physical comedy doesn't really translate to live action as much. Um, granted, you know, like stepping on the floorboards and getting hit in the face and hearing that cartoonish, you know, donk, you know, is it, is funny. But I think you lose a lot of the physical comedy, like riding the horse backwards or falling off things or, you know, fucking. And it, it really doesn't help that it starts with a cartoon, Fractured Fairy Tales, that I think is better written and more entertaining than the main feature. Yes. <laughs> and, what, and you're like, I'd amazes, rather be watching this. <laughs> what amazes me is it, it's a fractured fairy tale, and they get like the surviving cast of of Rocky and Bullwinkle in this. It's got the classic voice, uh, most of the classic voice actors. I believe Paul Freeze was dead at this point, so he's not in it. But uh, Edward Everett Horton, the original narrator of Fractured Fairy Tales, is doing the narration, and it is so exactly what a fractured fairy tale was on the show. And I could not find any real information about this, unfortunately, but it feels like it was an unproduced script that they just had lying around. Yeah, that could have been. I mean, it, it was um, one of the producers is the, I don't know if it's like the, the child or the spouse of uh, Jay Ward, but, you know, it, it certainly was a family operation. It is in widescreen, not full screen. But other than that, it, it has a kind of zip to it that while a lot happens in the Studley Do Right movie and just like the Boris and Natasha movie, Probably the best thing is the narration by Corey Burton. Yep. It when you start with a cartoon like that, it's like starting Psycho Two with clips from Psycho One. It just <laughs> makes you think of something else that uh, the movie can never achieve, and it really underlines how short. I mean, this running time on Wikipedia is wrong only because it doesn't have the cartoon in there, but it does show this movie is only seventy-seven minutes of the Deadly Do Right stuff. Right. And you, you you take the credit sequences out. It's probably clo- uh, just a, a hair over an hour. Yeah, yeah and it's... I feel like um, pacing wise, I think one thing that um, it suffers from is that it's not as zany as like Boris and Natasha was. It is zany mm-hmm. in that it's very cartoonish and and you know lively with a lot of action, but it just like it doesn't have that kind of weird irreverence that I think the other film had. Well, it's, it's really strange because, like, it, 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 I do find this movie really sort of threads the needle trying to preserve the, the, the style of humor and tone from the original cartoons. But also, like, the, the plot is sort of five different Dudley Do Right cartoon plots sort of stitched together. But they do kind of flow. And they're all plots that would have, like, that also would have floated around in those old black and white. Canadian Mountie like movie dramas like the, the people who made this clearly yeah. cared about the source material and how they were trying to bring it into the modern day yeah definitely I it's think um, we like it's very anachronistic we're like all the Canadians who live in the Rockies live like it's the late 1800s yeah. but it's clearly set in the modern day because at one point Snidely Whiplash goes on Regis and Kathy Lee right um, and it, yeah, they have and like, yeah, you know, we their, should, their torches and pitchforks and everything. All right, I have to correct you. It's not Snidely Whiplash. It's Eric Idle as Kim Darling, who is this the prospector there, gross prospector with the the rotted teeth and everything, who <laughs> is is set up to be the first person that discovers gold. So he essentially becomes the marketing mouthpiece for this uh, kind of um, gold prospecting town that. Uh, uh, that Snidely props up, and and speaking of which, it, I think I think of this film that that bothered me is you um, you have the cartoon of the opening sequence. It makes you think about the cartoon, 
in you have the stuff with them as little kids, which I think is kind of crap. But then when when the movie starts proper, you have Alfred Molina, Sarah Jessica Parker as Nell and Snidely doing cartoon voices. And then Brendan Fraser is Dudley Do Right just sounds like Brendan Fraser, except <laughs> when he does this musical number and does a pretty good imitation of the uh, particular cadence of the cartoon Dudley Do Right. Why not just stick to a cartoon voice or just have one person do a cartoon voice? Right. Yeah, I don't know, because on the on the one hand, yeah, yeah, I would appreciate Brendan Fraser doing a, a, a more heightened voice. But on the other hand, he does his best delivery when it's a little more deadpan and casual. So it, it is it is one yes. instance in which his casting in the role doesn't quite blend with everything else going going on in the movie. But I, I would challenge you. Can you think of someone better for that role at this time? Uh you know, I don't think he would have done it for the budget, but Robin Williams could have been an interesting Dudley Do Right. He would have been a better Snidely Whiplash. I think he's too high energy. I see. For Dudley Do Right. That could be something. Yeah. Alfred Molina, I think, is pretty good at Snidely Whiplash. He's great. He's, he is killing. He's it. amazing. He knows exactly what the role oh, requires. Yeah. He he the doesn't tone. do yeah. the classic Snidely Whiplash voice, but it definitely reads as an old timey villain voice, and it's just great, you know. Oh. Ah yes, I've got a I've got a brilliant plan. By the way, do you like the way I pronounced Puerto Rico? You know, I speak a bit of Spanish. <laughs> Which is it's funny too because and the thing the, what you're gonna run into with something like this is that your Snidely Whiplash is infinitely gonna be the more interesting character with the better lines and yeah, the drives the story. He gets all the stuff to do. He gets all the sinister stuff. Um, and, you know, by by um, virtue, you know, the Dudley Do-Right character is, is, you know, our lead and our hero. But when you're like a, a Mountie or a police officer, like it's like Elliot Ness is the most boring part of the Untouchables, right? Dudley Do-Right is going to be the straight guy, albeit, you know, incredibly clumsy and silly and the mark of many jokes. But well, think, um, yeah, Alfred like, Molina is just going to blow everyone outside of the water. Well, because I think I think one one problem with the film is the thing the thing that makes Dudley Do Right work as a comical character, and it and it's perfect in the cartoons, and they don't quite translate this into the movie. But in classic Dudley Do Right, Dudley Do Right is every bit as interesting and every bit as funny as Snidely Whiplash, but for the exact opposite reasons. He's funny because he's not that smart. But he makes up for his lack of intelligence with more earnestness than right. every other character. And they only, and I think I think that's it, Brendan Fraser's Dudley Do-Right is only occasionally as earnest as the role requires to still be a good comic role. That is true. Sure, he's I got, think. He's got more heart. Yeah, and, and one thing about this, this this story that, well, it does move and you have a lot going on, which I'm fine with, with kind of the serial nature of, and you have to have that hurried narrator in there as part of the whole word of it all, uh, is you have a, a movie in which you're introducing a character and then you proceed to strip him of his rank for a lot of the movie. So you're seeing Brendan Fraser look more like Brendan Fraser in The Mummy, which would have been around at this time. Yeah. I. I can't be too upset about that only because one of the like the classic Dudley Do Right stories is Dudley Do Right gets kicked out of the Mounties and like and then has to earn his way back in. That happens in like at least three of the old cartoons. But also it dovetails into one of the other like classic cartoon plots that they use here, which is Dudley Do Right becomes the villain. 
Yes, okay. and I, I did look and, and see on the home video releases of DVD and Blu-ray and videotape, you did not have any kind of documentaries or special features or anything about Nothing. this film. Nothing. Big Nothing. goose egg. So I, I do wonder if there's was... A, I mean, there must have been a lot cut out of this movie for it to be so short. And I wonder what kind of plot lines we lost. But w- what does work, and we hinted at earlier, is this kind of stuff with the uh, the Kumquat tribe of Indians, that they're all Brooklyn Indians, so it's, it's all <laughs> white people. It, it, a joke being that, you know, you had a lot of actors from New York play uh, Indians in these old Western movies, and one of which is Alex Rocco, Will Green from The Godfather, who was also in, uh, had a juicy part in the last week's Boris and Natasha movie. So it makes you think maybe he has some kind of a, a fondness for this material. Either that or an agent who likes to look for similar parts. But yeah, <laughs> that too, this, is, yeah. this is one of those things that I do wonder how a modern audience would, would look at it because that was because on 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 the it's it's one of those things where it's sort of two things at once where on on one hand, it is satirizing that obnoxious trend in movies where you have like non-indigenous actors playing indigenous parts. But at the same time, to do that, you have to cast a non-Indigenous actor in an Indigenous part. But then it also goes back to a running gag on Rocky and Bullwinkle, where they would arbitrarily give characters Brooklyn accents. <laughs> they like there, yeah. there's like, and, and it was, and it was typically it would be like it would be like Indigenous people. So there's there's a whole history on Rocky and Bullwinkle of like uh, Native American characters that all have Brooklyn accents. There's <laughs> a there's a whole there's a whole plot line involving Pacific Islanders where all the Pacific Islanders have Brooklyn accents. But then it gets revealed that the reason they all have Brooklyn accents is that. It was a guy from Brooklyn is is the one who taught them English. So that's the only version of English eh. they know. <laughs> I think what, what bothered me more is you have these extended sequences that are related to something that was very popular in the late 90s called Riverdance. I mean, I, I think it still is a popular oh, show in, in yeah. some circles, but it's kind of Michael Flatley Irish thing. But then you literally have the uh, the chief of the Alex Rocco. People love this Riverdance stuff. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. I don't think you needed to be... You know, it's sort of pulling the family guy. You're being very explicit as right. what you're yeah, yeah. pointing it out. It unravels the gag. Because, like, I, I got it. I get that it's Riverdance. And even if I didn't oh, yes. have a, know anything about Riverdance, I would look at that and, and still get the humor because it's clearly not an actual dance from the First Nations people of, of, of Northern yes. Canada. I would get the joke. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to spell it out. And but, I, I absolutely hate that. It's like square dancing. You don't need to tell me that you're square dancing. I can, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. should we actually uh, talk uh, talk about uh, what Snidely Whiplash's evil plan is? Yes. Yeah, it's a bit complicated, but go for it. All right, so so Snidely Whiplash, uh, and there's uh, one of the the best bits early on is when he's lurking around an abandoned gold mine, and and he's saying, "Oh well, I, we're we're hunting vampires, Dudley," <laughs> and like there's a running gag where Dudley is then afraid of vampires for like the next third of the movie, but. But what he's doing, he's got is that uh, he's got a uh, whiplash has a shotgun loaded with gold buckshot, and he's going into the mines and blasting into the cave at the mine walls, and then he's going to the river and blasting into the river. And what he's doing is he's salting an area with minerals, which I'm sure we're going to talk about because there are reams of laws on the books in America about this exact activity. 
Because what he's doing is he's making people think that there's a new gold rush to bring in tourists, but he's buying cheap land and flipping things and basically using the power of economics to take over the town and become kind of the, the only power. But it's all based on fraud because there is no gold rush. He's just salting just enough gold that tourists are finding stuff and telling friends about it and then more people come. And one thing I do like is that as several people point out, it's like, well, you know, Snidely did completely revitalize this town. <laughs> but he but, also set up the town, so he takes a cut out of everything, out of the hotel, out of the restaurant, out of the gift store, which is, oh, is modeled after like the Disneyland sort of gift store. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the villain is capitalism, as always. But like, but, you know, I, I like that really the film's objection to this is that it's dishonorable, not that it's illegal. Right. The act of um, of mind salting is that it was actually something that shoddy prospectors would do is that they would load um, shotgun cartridges with uh, pyrite and gold flake and actually shoot them onto pinched out claims and then to make them look more lucrative and they could sell them, obviously. So that was an actual process that was done and it was done with a shotgun, believe it or not. That kind of jumped out at me when I was watching this. I was like, holy shit, somebody kind of did their homework on, like, old-timey fucking, you know, gold claim chicanery, you know? And land scams, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, you have a pretty good gag here, too, of, of Americans rushing to Canada to do the gold rush. And you see the, the Canadian uh, customs inspector getting slammed by all these cars in, in what usually is a fairly <laughs> uh, quiet, respectful sort of process where the cars queue up and then you know cross the border well that, I, that also leads to one of the funny lines like oh we're getting lots of tourists mostly from america no one from canada well it's because americans they, they when they see something yeah. they just jump canadians like to think about it first <laughs> yes and you you have later on i think some good gags where eric idol is sort of a, a mentor and yes i mean the, the idea of a character doing kind of like a karate kid thing where he's teaching another character or a Yoda kind of thing. It, it's well, a I love that all of his lessons involve hating Dudley Do-Right with sticks. <laughs> it, it hits Dudley Do-Right with sticks and boulders, and then it's like, oh, you're jumping on one foot. That's a good defense. Oh, playing yes. dead. That's very good. And Brendan Fraser knows how to comedically take a hit. Oh, yeah. And, and, and oh. sell it. And and he puts that to better use in the, uh, the Joe Dante Looney Tunes back in action movie. So, which we, which um, we may have to do because now there's sort of a Space Jam trilogy. Oh, sort geez, of, yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so now either you feel like that, like the modern day setting kind of makes it feel like, I, I, at times I kind of felt like it was a little incongruous because like I think of Mounties and gold claims and, you know, uh, Snidely Whiplash as like this kind of like very old timey style villain and I almost wonder if the film would have worked better if it took place in like the 30s or the 50s or something like that. When you well, had that would have made of... it more expensive, I think. And but you see oh, some totally. modern stuff with, with with the tanks and the military at the end. And I, I think the one kind of modern joke that that really worked for me was the Regis and Kathy Lee stuff. <laughs> and Eric Idle, just you know, his character with with the teeth and stuff looks looks grosser than like a, a character out of um, Meaning of Life or Life of Brian. Like they really go for it with the teeth and, and how he talks and how he tries to be made up to look fancy for the TV show is funny. And then later on, he, he's, you know, back to being an alcoholic and he's in this gold rush town going like, I know, uh, I know Bette Midler. She was after me on 
Regis and Kathy Lee. <laughs> yeah. I, I very short-lived fame. I I like the anachronistic stuff. I mean, yeah, the cartoon was explicitly set in the late 1800s, but the cartoon pulled anachronistic stuff all the time. And I, I feel like it just helps this movie feel more like a cartoon, which frankly is what this movie needs. Yeah. I also, oh, you know what bit I, I absolutely loved is when Snidely is in his office with all of his henchmen who he's gotten out of prison and he's just, uh, he's just like uh, arbitrarily assigning them jobs in the city government. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yes. You read a word once you're the superintendent of County school. <laughs> Who's dumb enough to be the brain surgeon. Yes. That was great. <laughs> dumb enough to be a brain surgeon. So yeah, like so, the movie yeah. does have some bits that I do think are very, very successful, and that is one of them. Yeah, definitely. I think that Alfred Molina stuff is probably the best at the movie at its best. Oh yeah, no, he he knows exactly what the movie needs, and I love his like little like you know, oh I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm rich and I'm evil. I'm going to take right. up golf. <laughs> and like I I do think oh, uh, yes. I like seeing Brendan Fraser and in, in anything. He's uh, incredibly charming screen presence. And he really does kind of have that, like, wholesome, like, when I think of, like, wholesome face, I think of, like, Brendan Fraser in the 90s, you know what I mean? Like, he has a very, like, yeah. uh, wholesome, appealing look to him that that totally works for Dudley Do-Right. But it's, um, I think, like, the, the vampire bit was funny, but, like, it, him believing in vampires for so long almost made him seem, like, a little too dumb. Well, I think I think they shouldn't have dropped it. I think they should have carried that through the end because one ah. of the classic, one of one of the classic things in a Dudley Do Right cartoon is he's so dumb that he still succeeds, but for the wrong reasons. And right. that would have been hilarious if Dudley Do Right had unraveled all of Snidely's evil plans because he thought he was on he was going to start slaying vampires, not because he actually right. figured out what was going on. Like he but, shoves garlic in his face, and uh, Snidely Whiplash actually is like allergic to it, but he's not. Uh, a big... Yeah, just like a coincidence. That would be funny. right. Or he just doesn't like garlic. Yeah, um, exactly. But some something that. Uh, Something that I do think uh, works, uh, like when when Dudley decides, well, if everyone thinks the villain is good, then I should become the villain and be bad. And Dudley do, and that's also a classic. That's a classic uh, plot. There's a great classic Dudley Do Right cartoon where there's no crime in Canada, and so the Mounties feel useless. So <laughs> he, Dudley, is appointed Canada's official criminal to cause crimes for right. the Mounties to solve. So they they touch on that, and we get to see Brendan Fraser kind of being a goofy villain and there's a and i one of my favorite styles of of joke is the joke that goes on too long and there's a bit where dudley do right is a villain uh demolishes uh snidely whiplash's gold salting operation the place where they're like melting down gold and turning it into the buckshot and he takes a t old-timey tommy gun and yeah. shoots dd into the side of the shack and then later when Snidely's there with his goons, like, DD, do you have any idea how this who this is? Doris and Day. All of the Yeah, Doris Doris Day. David Duchovny. Like they <laughs> list, I think, mostly Canadian people with double D initials. Daniel Day and, and he's like, No, it's obviously Dudley Do-Right. But then they won't stop suggesting names no matter what where Snidely is trying to carry the conversation. 
Sequelcast 2 and Friends is a podcast looking at movies and a franchise one film at a time, hosted by me, Matt Bradley Shuri, Alex, and Thrasher. We also look at video games. We're working through Sierra Online's adventure games from Mystery House all the way up through Gabriel Knight 3 and larger pop culture topics. It's a lot of fun. For more info, go to sequelcast2.com, only on the Tokyo Beat Network. But, you know, we do get we do get our, our, our thrilling ending, uh, you know, the... The so after after Eric Idle trains Dudley Do Right, he talks about how you know I've also learned something. I'm gonna sober up. I'm gonna go back to my family, and he like leaves. And so at the end, there's a huge showdown where where Dudley uh, makes an alliance with the Kumquats, and you know they don't have weapons, but they do have fireworks from their fireworks display, mm-hmm. and they use the fireworks to fight back against Snidely, who now has like a tank and his own mercenary. Yeah. And it's, it's great. And there's a, and there's a, there's a fun showdown and Dudley, you know, rides his horse through cannon fire. And I got to give this movie restraint. There's not much CGI horse in this movie. No, not really. And CGI animals in this era date very, very poorly. And I oh, have yeah. to applaud the filmmakers restraint for not, doing a whole lot of CGI horse action. You saw plenty of that in the mummy movies, actually. Oh, yeah. But, uh, and, you know, and everything is fine. And then, like, you know, there's a whole final showdown, and it's just, you know, Dudley and Snidely. And then Eric Idle comes back, and it turns out his family is all highly placed in the Canadian government, and he explained to them what (laughs) Snidely was doing, and now they just show up and arrest Snidely and all his goons and take him out of town. I think um, it's got one of my favorite lines from Alex Rocco, too. It was that a kumquat doesn't walk away from a fight. They run. Oh, God, that's such a classic line. (laughs) Certainly. But, you know, you know Dudley and Nell, Dudley gets Nell, and Sarah Jessica Parker, she does a great Nell Fenwick. She captures the sort of wide-eyed innocence and exuberance, uh, lust for life that the classic Nell Fenwick had, who was voiced by June Foray, who I am shocked doesn't have a cameo in this film. Yeah. Even, like, like uh, I mean, I, she's, she's in the cartoon, but, like... She really should have a uh, like a uh, she should be Nell's mother or something in this, uh, you know, and there's Inspector Fenwick and all that. Um, and, you know, every, everything's, you know, right with the world. Uh, and so, you know, you get your you get your traditional sappy, happy ending. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And you might be wondering, you know, what is the all these properties? J Word Productions, what are they up to now? Well, the, the company is being run by one of uh, Jay Ward's daughter, Tiffany Ward, who who had a credit on that cartoon in the beginning of the Dudley D. Wright film. And um, they, they're working with a, a company called Wild Brain that I'm not really familiar with. But before they worked with Wild Brain to license their um, properties to DreamWorks, where we had things like the cartoon of uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. And um, you had a, Amazon did a brief Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon for a little bit there. So they want to keep things going, and the the library of cartoons, not just Rocky and Point, goes over 750 episodes, including things like Super Chicken. Yeah, how long do you think it'll be before we get our Tennessee Tuxedo movie? I don't know if we'll see a Tennessee Tuxedo movie, but I can see an attempt at doing movies and kind of doing the the fucking multiverse interconnected thing. The Jay Ward Cinematic Universe. I can't. That, that we can't, haven't seen a Fractured Fairy Tales TV show, I think, is a little bit surprising. A new yeah. one. Yeah. Well, Fractured, Fractured Fairy Tales, it's so much about the performance. I'm kind of shocked it's not a podcast. Just like, oh, like short, not a bad 10 idea. minute episodes that give you a yeah, goofy yeah. fairy tale. 
well, the Aesop's fables and all that. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, one of the last performances of uh, Rocky that um, was was done by the original uh, actress was in the uh, some of those Amazon uh, cartoons that use computer graphics and are kind of a bit more about the slapsticky action than the puns, but at ah. least it's trying to, you know, you have to do something to keep it alive, so... I have not seen those. I might have to check those out just to weigh in on them next week. Yes. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, Dudley do right overall. I think this, it has its moments. It's trying. Its heart is in the right place. And yet it isn't quite there. I'm not sure if it's Brendan Fraser. I'm not sure if the, the plot is a bit too busy. There, there just is sort of a, a lack of, there's a lot of urgency at the beginning and then towards the end, it just kind of goes in this action set piece that is a bit overproduced for what it is, and that he's he's doing essentially a suicide run on tanks with his horse, and he's reunited with his horse. It's supposed to be a big moment, but because you don't, other than some dream sequences, the horse isn't a big deal for much of the story. It, for Not me, that really. really pay off. And then, oh, he's reunited with his horse. Horse. H- horses are expensive. I think that's why the horse was written out of most <laughs> of the movie. True. Uh, to say nothing of you need a stuntman to do a lot of that. Although he he does do some of the horse stuff. I mean, there's a good gag where he's on the horse when it's knocked down and the horse manages to get up, which was probably something played in reverse maybe. But um, yeah, it's there's a lot going on there. And it's it, it's earnest. But overall, I would say sequel, no, to Dudley do right. This is not... I, I don't think it's a complete waste of your time, but you're better off just watching the cartoon in the beginning and not... And maybe watching a highlight reel of the uh, Snipely Whip, Whip, Whiplash stuff. I'm going to give it a sequel, yes. Alfred Molina is transcendent as Snidely Whiplash. I love the plot convolutions. I think the, the bits that work, work really, really well. And then the movie is so densely packed. It's kind of like Airplane. Oh, you didn't like that joke? Well, within 30 seconds, there'll be another joke that you'll probably like better. Um, and... Yes, it's only 77 minutes, but it's so packed, it feels longer, but in a good way, not in a tedious way. Like, you, you feel like you watched a good hour and a half of uh, of story. So, yeah, for and and it it still does capture a lot. It, it's a movie that captures what you want to capture in a Dudley Do-Right film when you're adapting from animation to live action. So, for me, it does get a sequel, yes. But you probably will get more out of this if you're a fan of the source material or have a context for that style of humor. And Alex? Um, While there are some parts about, there were some aspects of the film that I liked and some good gags, I'm going to have to go with a slight sequel no. I mean, it was fun, but... I, like you mentioned, Thrash, about the runtime, I felt like it dragged in a way that wasn't uh, beneficial to the overall experience. Um, it was, uh, it hit some fun bits, and there's some fun bits of comedy, but I just don't think it really hits a good, it, it never really seems like it hits the right tone, and it just kind of, um, it's a little uh, scattershot uh, for me. Um but yeah, it, it does have its charm, but um, a, a sequel, no, with uh, some enthusiastic things to say about the film, even if it's not entirely successful. And 
there you go. If you want to check out the film yourself, the um, well, the disc is out of print. You can find it on eBay easy enough. There's also a few of those things where it's like two or three movies on a pack where Dudley Do-Right is thrown on there. That's probably your best deal, but it did have a DVD <laughs> and a Blu-ray release. You can uh-huh. also rent it or purchase it digitally through um, Amazon Video and, and uh, services like that. So uh, let's move on to what you're watching. I think since um, it's been a while, we, we might as well do two apiece. How does that sound? I suppose we could. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, my first one, it's uh, it's not a movie, it's a book. It's Quentin Tarantino's new book, Cinema Speculation. Ooh. It's his first nonfiction uh, book. His other one being, uh, he did sort of like a novelization of um, the, uh, the Hollywood, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But Cinema Speculation, it's him writing essays mainly about movies he saw as a kid on the seventies that he probably shouldn't have seen um, <laughs> because his, his uh, he was raised by um, a, a single mom for, for pretty much his whole life. And sometimes just his grandma while his mom was trying to find work. And so he just had a lot of time going to the movies when it was a cheap thing to do or just watching stuff on television. And he does a whole chapter on a film you talked about Alex uh, on the show recently. He does a whole chapter on Stallone's paradise alley. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and and not and he says you know you know it's not the best Stallone film and mentions some of the same problems you did, but he says you know it's kind of a building block that Sylvester Stallone needed to do as a directorial debut to get stuff out of his system before uh, doing Rocky Two. Yeah, and um, he also shares your thought, Thrasher, that Rocky Two is a better film than Rocky One. So it hmm. as Tarantino does in his podcast and interview and talk show appearances, he jumps all around the place. He doesn't just stick to talking about one movie. But I think you know the, the book is is well done. I'm a bit surprised we haven't seen a book like this from Tarantino before, and I imagine it won't be the last. Uh, whether Tarantino sticks to the thing he keeps threatening, that I'm only going to do 10 films, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I have no idea, but I think it's a dumb proclamation to make. I know. Because either you're going to stick to it and people will complain, or you you uh, you don't do it and people will complain. It, it is the marketing thing where you're like the seventh film by Quentin Tarantino. I mean, sure, that's smart, fine. Right. But... Um, there was also a, a variety story that has where someone was asking Tarantino the, the least interesting question possible. Will you do a Marvel film? Which uh, they seem to ask every single director out there. And uh, he says, you have to be a hired hand to do these things. I don't do this. And then he smartly compares superhero movies to uh, musicals being like the big genre in the 1960s. Right. And he says, he, and he uh, makes a quote, filmmakers today can't wait for the day superhero movies fall out of favor. Because you're mm-hmm. going to get some big bombs that are going to make it, hey, maybe we should pump the brakes on this a little bit. Right. And, you and, know, and that, that day is going to happen. The question is when. Right. And it's yes. funny that Quentin Tarantino says it and, you know, nobody loses their shit. But Martin Scorsese says something and everyone loses their fucking minds. Right. And that um, allegedly, oh, whoever was the head of Disney at the time invited Scorsese for a private one-on-one meeting to admonish him. Pretty oh, much. God. It's like, just stop it. I mean, that's about as bad as when Titanic came out and James Cameron went after a film critic that gave it a bad review and claiming <laughs> the film critic didn't know how to enjoy life. Like, it's... Yeah. Oh, like Lord. The, Come on. Just childish behavior. Oh, no one likes me. Like, who cares? Yeah. Like, okay, so a lot of other people did. You made billions of dollars enjoy your money and it's not going to last forever. Like, yeah, for real. What, what can you say? Um, Thrasher, what's the, what's something you've been watching? 
Uh, so in my uh, misguided attempt to recreate the magic of watching USA's Up All Night, uh, when mm. I can't sleep, I'm trying to find some great trash. Uh, yes. And I ended up I ended up watching uh, Bikini Jones and the Temple of Eros, uh, uh, streaming on Tubi uh. under the title Cruella's Castle, which I can only assume they discovered, oh, Disney made a movie named Cruella, and this movie happens to have a character named Cruella. Throw that on there. Optimize that Quite search likely. result. Yep. Uh, and this is the kind of Fred Olin Ray movie, and it is a Fred Olin Ray movie. He wrote and directed it. Um, that would very often, you know, originally uh, go to video stores or Cinemax and then would get recut to have the nudity removed to be put on USA's Up All Night. And boy, howdy. The version streaming on uh, Tubi is the version that has the nudity removed, but they wait uh, so late. Mm -hmm. Like the, the cuts removing the nudity are so glaringly awkward. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, you know, it, it, like USA's Up All Night, uh, uh, strangely enough, was a bit more artful with its cuts. But I mean, it, it's essentially it's it's a it's a D list movie. Uh, starring Christine Nguyen, who's the best part of it, frankly. She's done a lot of movies like this. She's also done bit parts. She's actually, she is in Get Him to the Greek. Oh, okay. I have to correct uh, you there. That the, last name, the, yeah, go on. Yeah, she, she's one of the go-go dancers that uh, when they when they go to the strip club with Aldous Snow. Um, but she plays an Indiana Jones type who has to find some ancient relic before a dictator named Cruella gets it and uses it to take over the world. And there's lots of horrible CGI backgrounds, a lot of horrible CGI dinosaurs. Like, it's not as fun as what I'm describing, but mm. it also is kind of the perfect encapsulation of that camp. And I think it runs like less than an hour on Tubi. <laughs> Jeez. So they really did so, like, cut it to the bone it, there. Yeah. Well, it's one of these things. It is nothing is good about this, except I guess except Christine Nguyen. But and yet, as a lover of of great trash, I found the experience of watching it endlessly entertaining. <laughs> it would probably be better to watch it with some friends and and riff on it. So I can't I can't really recommend it. Mm. But it's also it seems arbitrary. Also, if I can talk about like cutting out the nude scenes. What's really extra weird about that is that Cruella wears this outfit where you can still see everything. Huh? So but, if you're going to show that, why aren't you going to just show everything else? Right. Sure. Um, I was just going to throw in there really quick that that actress's last name is not pronounced Nguyen. It, it, that's how you you would think you might do it, but it, it's a oh, common it Viet. Uh, it's Nguyen. It, it's a common Vietnamese oh, last Nguyen. name. It's it's um kind of the version of Smith over there, I guess you could say. But yeah, it's Nguyen. I only know that because I worked with um, a lot of Vietnamese people doing data entry for cool. several years. But anyhow, yes, interesting. And and th that's so short is, um, I mean, Tubi has a lot of very, in, despite their their name, like Tubi and Pluto as well, as, as far as free services go, have a lot of very interesting things in their catalog. They Some do surprise it's random. me quite a bit. Some of it's actually like they have the Spielberg stuff was on Tubi. I almost like choked on like coffee. I'm like, what? Oh shit! Bridge of Spies is on like, here. Like, <laughs> like they've got original Drunken Master. Like, yeah, nice. Yeah, and it's fascinating and speaking, stuff you find here. Right. Speaking of free stuff, I mean, like the Roku channel has a lot of that content that was meant for Queeby. So, <laughs> yeah, you just never know where this stuff 
Flops up. Uh, Alex, what have you been watching? Hold on to that stock. Quibi's coming back. Yeah, exactly. Um, I uh, recently watched the uh, new iteration of Hellraiser as a kind of a spooky season primer. And I do not understand the adoration this film is receiving. Um, The two words that kept going through my head while I was watching this and thinking about it were flaccid and anemic. (laughs) I I would add to it extremely didactic. Yeah. There's no it's about. Um, addiction and, and recovery that like a lot of character, like a lot of Hellraiser movies just happen to have the Cenobites in it. Right. And <laughs> it spends a lot of energy getting us into these characters, getting us into the character of Riley and that she has this huge, you know, uh, history with addiction and, you know, she's on again, off again with her sobriety and it really doesn't contribute much to the overall story. Um, and again, it gets us really ramped up in her life and, you know, the dynamic, her living situation, her brother, her brother's relationship. Um, and these characters, like, just, it, they they build up all this, like, you know, real-life shit, you know, how this all is going to play into something, and it doesn't really play into anything to character disappears and they spend a lot of time looking for him and the there's a lot of walking around this big old fucking house and not only look, that but the character disappears in a gas station bathroom and the discovery of the character being disappeared is done as like the cheapest way possible yeah so she fucking it, it, like <laughs> she she fucking sits on one of those little carousel things passes out and then has a spooky dream and then there like a pentagram of blood comes up on her chest and then it didn't really happen or did it happen? I don't know. And then like the fucking the Cenobites suck. I'm sorry. They're not interesting. They don't have any of that energy or presence that the originals had. Um, they just like they talk in these like stupid whispery cipher voices. It sounds like like a stock sound effect, you know, like somebody just hit like creepy voice one on like the audio section of Final Cut or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it was just like these like bad stock sound effects. The deaths weren't that interesting. It almost felt like like a fucking Scooby Doo episode towards the end. It's like, let's all get in a van and drive to the creepy house. Now you see that's the that's the crossover we need. We need an Cenobites official Scooby gang meets Hellraiser. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there, there is there's a there's a novel um, written with the blessing of of Clive Barker that's a crossover of Sherlock Holmes and Hellraiser. Huh. That's that's really interesting. That I think can make a good you can stick film Sherlock miniseries Holmes with a lot of things, and it usually works. Yeah. Or um, um, the fucking Jack the Ripper one, uh, Murder by Decree, is a great fucking movie. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a it's a big one, and um, I mean, there's so much to know Sherlock Holmes over the years, but yeah, I, with Hellraiser, I think the disappointing thing with that film for me, because I, I see note as well, was there was a there was a lot of hype pointed to it. B, this is the first one with like real money. Yeah, not real money, but like you know, a proper budget, uh, for for years and years and years, um, and that this is what it is. I I. I We'll be seeing another Hellraiser movie, whether it continues with these versions of the Cenobites. Yeah. I'm not sure. And then part of me cynically thinks this version was done just to get people more excited for a Doug Bradley version to come back. Yeah, right. (laughs) I think, like, the whole thing, too, is that I, I don't really know how you could, like, 
make this property like more edgy and and savvy to a modern audience because Clive Barker's fucking Hellraiser rocks. Um, and this also like the, like the pain and pleasure temptation, um, the the lure of the otherworldly like is just not here. Like the Cenobites aren't interesting. Mm-hmm. The you know the fucking other world of like you know fucking sadomasochistic cosmic lust is like completely missing. I just there's no like lurid naughtiness in this movie. It's not it's like sopping a, in blood. Yeah, exactly. It's not like <laughs> goopy fucking gross horror. Fandoria. Yeah. It's just this yeah. big old fucked up mansion with a bunch of fucking right. boring people wandering around. Um and like also like it's uh it's like the uh, the fucking John Singleton's shaft. It's like this is like a very sexless Hellraiser. There's like one mm. sex scene and it's just like very awkward and kind of unflattering to watch. Whereas the original is like it's like this fucking it's like a softcore porn at points, but it sells the passion between these characters yep. and understands the motivation yeah, I, why I, you fuck with the uh you know otherworldly to like, you know, reclaim your passionate lured love affair. Well, I think that that's something that is that is missing, honestly, from the last few movies in the series is that the the original Hellraiser films and the ones that are at their best are very overtly sexual, yeah. not horny, right. but sexual. And so much of the drama of those films comes from the tension between sort of the intellectual erotic approach to sex versus the base animal drive of sex. Yeah, it does seem to be something that modern filmmakers don't want to engage with. Right. If, because I, I just don't know why. And the, Anytime you see nudity and stuff, it, it's pretty rare nowadays. Maybe it's to cater to some uh, more international markets that frown upon such things. I'm not really sure. But yeah, it's been... No, no, no. Here's the thing. America is the international market that frowns on such things. Most of the rest of the world's fine <laughs> with it. Right. But in the like the one the 2022 this year's Hellraiser when it does court you know sexual content it's like it almost just seems like obligatory like here you go here's the sex scene because it's a Hellraiser movie but it has nothing to do with the fucking story it's just like an awkward scene that's like not really played for laughs or you know it's like just dumb it just doesn't well, it, doesn't it's do lit so it's poorly there. they might as well be fixing a, a drawer in the kitchen. Like yeah, it's, it's such a tight close-up that it's like, oh, okay, I guess that's what's going on. Right. Well, well good. Uh, let's do another round of these. Um, I saw a film that just came out, a free movie on the Roku channel, but you don't need a Roku account to watch it. It is Weird, the Al Yankovic story, directed oh, by Eric Capel, written by Al Yankovic and Eric Capel, based on the fake trailer that Eric Capel directed uh, for Funny or Die. And Funny or Die has a production credit, which I don't think I've seen. I'm sure they've done other movies like that before, but I, I, it's the first time I recall seeing it um, on something. And so what you have here, this is Rudolf Yankovic. He's been trying to write or, or be involved in a movie in a long time. And, and this is a, a fake version of his life story where he's played by Daniel Radcliffe of Harry Potter fame. And I, I think the movie is a little bit too long at 108 minutes. It It starts out earnest and gets kind of crazier as it goes on, which I think is the right call. If I meet Rachel Wood as Madonna, um, who kind of um, starts to ruin Weirdo Yankovic's life in some ways, <laughs> is is very good at capturing the uh, kind of who's that girl kind of early 80s stuff going on. Some of it's like more of an action picture than I was expecting. I think it's 
Well, it is comedic. It, it does play some other stuff straight. And I'm not crazy about Weird Al Yankovic performing his own songs and Daniel Radcliffe lip syncing to it because there's a big disconnect there. Uh, but that's more me. I'd rather see an album of someone doing covers than just yeah. the original artist back in the studio doing songs you've heard a million times already. But he had to re-record these things because the um, the originals, especially the, the the early Al Yankovic stuff you hear in here, was recorded in a bathroom in a gas station or something. It's <laughs> right. The, the original audio is just not great. Right. So they, they had to re-record it. But I mean, you, you do. There, there's a lot of funny stuff here. I think you'll enjoy it. The, the ending, I, I was very, very shocked by. Um, and maybe hopefully we'll, we'll it, it won't be another, you know, 30 something years before we see another Al Yankovic thing. But he seems very happy not doing albums, uh, touring as much as he can. And there is a new song over the end credits. Oh, cool. Called called uh, original song called Now You Know. <laughs> and nice. part of which brags about it being technically eligible for an Academy Award nomination. But I, it, if it gets one, I'll be very surprised. Uh-huh. But I, I, I wish they would do that. I and let Weird Al play during the Academy Awards. I might watch them now in their entirety this time if Weird Al was going to be making a performance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this year in the Oscars, they're 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 doing something that they haven't ever done in the Oscars before, and that they're letting people that work for television produce the show. So there are people that have produced the Emmys and and Golden Globes and other shows that are more entertaining. They're working oh, cool. on the Oscars because the ratings have been in such in the toilet. Uh, so maybe that will make into a, a better. It won't make into a shorter show. I'll, I'll give you that much because it always <laughs> runs <laughs> over. Ugh. It, I don't think we'll get a, a, a pop culture moment as um, much as I hate describing it that way of, of, of Will Smith uh, assaulting Chris Rock, frankly. Uh, but but we I, we I think we'll, we'll get a slicker show, hopefully. We, well, what the Oscars need are fewer speeches by legendary uh, filmmakers and yes. more musical tributes uh. to the gobo arm. <laughs> Right, and uh, as Alex is resting in his room for a minute, um, Thrasher, why don't you talk about a second thing you've been watching? Well, in my quest to watch every bit of Scooby-Doo media ever created, uh, I'm slowly getting caught up on Scooby-Doo and Guess Who, which was a throwback revival of Scooby-Doo, kind of inspired by the new Scooby-Doo mysteries, where every episode is Scooby-Doo and the gang teaming up with somebody. And sometimes it's like a character that a Warner Brothers happens to have the rights to. And sometimes it's like a famous person playing themselves. And the one I wanted to talk about uh, was the episode uh, episode uh, 22 in the second season, Scooby-Doo and the Skytown Cool School, because the special guest is Billy D. Williams as himself. And... I really like Billy D. Williams, you know, I've liked him since I saw him in Star Wars, and I feel like it's a shame he doesn't show up in more stuff, because he has a great premise and a, a great presence and a great voice. But Billy D. sort of playing himself in this Scooby-Doo cartoon, it's really delightful. And the whole premise is Billy D. Williams owns this high-tech chalet in the mountains where <laughs> he gives you lessons in how to be the coolest person possible, because he's the mm-hmm. coolest person possible. And it's really funny, like, 
Billy D. Williams just kind of lending his smooth voice to these goofy cartoon characters. And it has some meta humor that I like. Like one of the things he talks about is now to be cool, you have to have a cool walk. Now watch me. And there's just this overly animated, casual, <laughs> sexy Billy D. Williams walk. Like, uh, now let me see you walk. And then it's just the Scooby gang doing their regular walk cycle <laughs> through a repeat background. Uh, no, so, no, I mean, no, do it like yeah. this. Yeah, they've been so many Scooby-Doo things over the years. Is this a, a contemporary cartoon you're saying? A it, recent one? Or? It was. Uh, the most recent episode came out October 1st in 2021. Okay. However, there is supposed to be a third season in the works. Right. But so how, we may be um, getting more of this. With how HBO I Discovery say, has been axing things, who knows? Yeah, yeah. I see. I say supposed to be because I would not be shocked if Scooby-Doo and Guess Who does become another victim of the animation purge. Yeah, the, the, the one of those I've been meaning to see was the episode based on Mark Hamill when he was in high school in uh, Japan. Oh, I have himself. not seen that one yet. That's one he did, and they, they did one with, um, I don't know if this, it, it might be the same series, but they did one with Batman where Mark Hamill was back as the Joker and he had um, the, the, the cast from the uh, uh, 90s animated series. Yes, in fact, I believe that is the very first episode is Scooby and the gang. Oh, no, it's not. Sorry, the first episode is the one with Chris Paul where they meet the swamp monster. But yeah, they the one with Batman is is quite delightful. And Mark Hamill does play the Joker. And there's a there's a wonderful bit where like Joker and Daphne swap lipstick tips because they kind of go for the classic giant red smile Joker. Yeah, that's. That's a good point. I'm reminded of Mark Hamill complaining when he was on The Simpsons. He did. Uh, he voiced a few characters, not just himself. Uh, sort of him doing a, a guys and dolls thing, and and one of the characters he meant to play was the, the choreographer, and and he voiced the character as being uh, gay, and then Fox said that's inappropriate, and so they had someone else redub that character. And Mark Hamill, who's worked in theater quite a lot of his career, and and um, you know, has has uh, has known and, and been friends with a lot of gay people. It's like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you even doing? Are you saying a gay person can't be a choreographer? Yeah, what the fuck, just nonsense. Well, I, I have to check it out. That it sounds like a good cartoon, and uh, that that bit of animation with Billy D. Williams walking sounds uh, sounds pretty good. Yeah, and and just just to say, and and it kind of runs the gamut. Like sometimes the mystery is very secondary to the guest star, but they do have a handful of episodes where the mystery is truly brilliant. As strange as this is going to sound, there's an ep- there's episode eight when Urkel bots go bad. The special guest is Steve Urkel, played by Jaleel White, and the actual mystery they solve is genius. Uh-huh. It is one of the best Good. mysteries. It's in Scooby-Doo history, and it works. Every beat of the mystery works. Huh. Fantastic. Yeah, um, I'll have to check that out. Sounds uh, sounds up my alley. I was I was uh, doing research for some project that looks like it's not going to go off the ground now, but there is, uh, I, I guess Tim Curry did voices in a few of those um, made-for-video uh, um, Scooby-Doo uh, features. And, I believe he played and Professor one... Ravenscroft. Yeah, I, it might have been that one. And, and in that, it had a special feature in what Scooby-Doo is narrating. Does you hear Scooby-Doo say the name Tim Curry, which is <laughs> strange, <laughs> to say the least. It features Tim Curry. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Alex, what's uh, what have you been watching? Um, I watched a uh, pretty good movie. Uh, see from nineteen forty-six, uh, Dragonwick. Oh, it's a great movie by um, Joseph uh, Mankiewicz, and it's uh, one of the, it was a big starring vehicle for a young Vincent Price. I mean, not young; he had been acting on stage for years, but um. Yeah, Walter Houston um, is in it. It's a it's very Rebecca esque in that you have like kind of like a naive young country girl going out to this like you know elusive manor run by this fucking you know very enigmatic rich baron type guy played by Vincent Price of course, and they you know um, uh, you know they fucking fall for each other and. Um, get married and all that. And it's just this big, like it's, it's very much like a Gothic romance. That's like very like flirting with horror. I'll say it's, it's not quite a horror film in that there are horrific things that happen, but it's just got that great. It's all about just the fucking atmosphere and that just moody black and white mm. filming and that very, very atmospheric lighting. This is it's dragon really cool. wick with a Y at the end. Yes. Uh, yeah. And in the poster is quite interesting. It features a uh, Jean Turney, and and you don't see the face of who is crying into her arms, and to see a a, a woman's face featured so prominently in the poster, it's is, a it's um, a great movie. It nice really knocked me out. Yeah. Um, it's a it's almost like it feels like something like M R James meets Daphne de Maurier. Um, it is based on the novel by Anya Seton. I'm not going to act like I know who that is, but a Apparently it was a big hit at the time, I think. Um, but I would, I mean, if you like, you know, like gothic romances or just kind of like old school melodrama, this is like fucking, this is a great movie. I'm shocked I just came around to it this year. Um, I really like, really dug this though. And also I kind of watched it back to back with The Devil and Daniel Webster. So if you want two great Walter Houston uh, performances, watch those back to back. There you go. I mean, it looks like some of her, her, um, other books, the uh, Anne Seton have uh, kind of supernatural, at least if not themes, titles like the Mistletoe and the Sword, uh, Devil Water, Smoldering Ooh. Fires, Green Ooh. Darkness. Green Darkness is a pretty good title. Nice. Um, and she, you know, lived to the ripe old age of 86, nice. which for someone being born in 1904 is no slouch. Not bad at all. She even did a historical novel, Catherine, based on the uh, third surviving son of, oh, excuse me, talks about a love affair about um, children of King, King Edward III. So, Ooh. Something more medieval there, but historical romance, if you will. But yeah, so, sounds good. Cool title. Is this a criterion yeah. or something? Dragonwick? Uh, indicator. Um, I would have... Oh label horror or not that i am um this was something mm -hmm. i had been seeking out for a long time though i see well that's nice it's uh something that's uh, available i mean oh produced by ernest ernst lubitsch of course uh, yeah yeah so so one of those that sometimes these older movies are just hard to find they made so many of them and then they were kept in such bad shape right and the transfer on the blu-ray looks fucking great too good good yeah they did a good job of that for show Oh, right. Well, we did an extended uh, version of what you're watching this week. So now we have a sequel scene, Thrasher, you prepared for us. And um, why, don't, why don't you set the scene here? 
So this is from the climax of the film. This is after this is after quite literally the cavalry shows up to help Dudley, Nell, and the Kumquats fight off uh, Snidely Whiplash and his mercenary army. So uh, you know, so you know, this is you know, Dudley approaching uh, Snidely to have their last conversation. And I just want to point out this uh, glaring factual error, uh, courtesy of the IMDb goofs page. Uh, during the tank battle, the helmet Snidely is wearing is not an armored tank helmet. It is an HGU-56P American Millery Rotary Wing aircraft crew helmet. Ooh, anyone could have figured that out. What a yeah, clearly a someone dropped okay, the ball. I would like to play the announcer if you don't mind. Oh, oh no, go right ahead. And and who wants who wants to be Dudley? Who wants to be Snidely? I love Snidely so much. I would like to be there Snidely. If nobody... I'll be the Dudster. You'll, you'll, you'll do uh, Dudley, or as the narrator calls him, Dudley is now Studley. Yeah. <laughs> good line. Okay. Action. All right. All right. So D- Dudley uh, approaches Snidely. Oh, hello, Dudley. Hello, Whip. <sighs> I've lost everything. Even the announcer's gone. No, I'm still here. Someone's got to explain where the cavalry came from. Yes, I was a mite curious about that myself. <laughs> so you see, Canadians rise out of the ground when they see panic. That is how and the cavalry came on the scene. No. Gravy, cheese, curd, and fries. Yeah, no they, no Canadian bacon jokes. No. Well, uh, there was one on the television. They're oh, like, it turns out Canadian bacon is just bacon right in hand. Yeah. Sure. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. No, no poutine. <laughs> no poutine. And in fact, I was in Epcot Center recently, as was uh, uh, sometimes uh, host of the show, Jersey Jason. And he got to go there, too. And I think he actually had poutine in Canada. But because we tried to cram too much in half a day, we didn't get to see much of the Canada section of Epcot Center. Aww. But frankly, more of Epcot Center than I would have thought is just gift shops and restaurants. And because it's the Food and Wine Festival for like half the year, uh, delightful pop-up shops where things cost probably what they should, where it's maybe 4 or $5 for a drink and 4 or $5 for a little appetizer. Hmm. But if Epcot- you do it over 14 countries, that can add up. Interesting. Epcot backwards is Talkby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. And Epcot is a acronym um, which stands for something that I am sure that's a it's great experimental deal. prototype community of tomorrow. Eating yes. poop constantly over time. <laughs> oh. a, that, that could be a John Waters film. Although I think John Waters is back to directing. Uh, he's going to direct an adaptation of his novel that he came out with recently. Ooh, cool. So that's probably why he wrote the novel in the first place, because they won't make anything unless it's based off an IP. There you go. <laughs> Okay, so well, I can't wait next, till it comes around, and you won't be able to publish novels unless those novels are based on, like, I don't know, a tweet or something. I want to start a series about a private eye that investigates IPs called PIPI. IPI. IPPI. IPI freely. IPIP freely. No, that has to be his name. His name has to be IP freely. Yeah. Not I'm an IPPI. Name, of course, but people take it seriously as an IP to test yes. it. Yes, yes, yes. The novel of the name of his novel is Liar Mouth. 
which is a great uh, Ace great title Freely there. from Kiss becomes the IPPI. <laughs> I'm going to solve a mystery. <laughs> I'd solve a mystery if I rewrite history. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just violated somebody's trademark. <laughs> you blend right in with that makeup, Ace. <laughs> I'm a master of disguise. <laughs> I'm a cat. Oh, wait, who's the cat? No, Ace is from outer space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm the star child. That's right. He's like evil David Bowie. Hey, star child, I'm going to try to bend these iron bars with my mind. Okay. I have to say that it's uh, if you want a highly entertaining book, read any of Gene Simmons' memoirs. In oh, which, yeah. A, he does nothing but bitch about his co-band members, but B, he, he proves himself not only to be a good businessman, just be a very patient man, and that I think he lived with his parents until he was in his 30s to save a lot of money. He his, uh, he had a day job as a businessman, then, then did stuff with the band trying to get it going, and then at night he had a job doing security at a sandwich shop so he could get a free dinner every night. Nice. And then he would take a big sandwich home, and then it'd also be his lunch the next day, so he didn't have to spend money on food, really. Ah, huh. wicked smart. Yeah, I like so. to imagine though that like he's still that frugal. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. He's jeez. He'd go, hey. Uh, he'd go to the sandwich guy. You don't have any extra. He'd go to the sandwich store. Uh, you don't have any extra sandwiches, do you? I'm Gene Simmons from Kiss. He's like, uh, oh, sir, yes. Billy D. Williams character in Arrested Development. <laughs> Right. No, no, that yes. was uh, that wasn't Billy D. Oh. Williams. That oh, it was the guy from Predator. Carl yeah. Weathers. Oh, fuck, what's his Carl name? Weathers. That's the one. Carl Weathers. Yeah. Right, I, I like to think Gene Simmons has like three freezers in his garage that are full of like uh, preserved like Subway sandwiches from his thirties. Yeah. That he could He's got a storage closet full of hotel soap. When he was on, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, with uh, competing with the late Gilbert Gottfried on that. Yeah, he has uh, a, a bunch right. of deer meat, and then somebody asks if he's into hunting. He goes, "No, I hit it with a car. Didn't spoil the meat, though." Ah, before I wrap up for the show, I have a good deer story I, I heard. Ooh. So I was in a YouTube hole, as I so often am. YouTube hole would be a good name for a memoir, but um, anyhow, <laughs> I, I, I was. Uh, it was uh, Ralph Macchio was, was talking about. He's in My Cousin Vinny, and it was filmed in. Uh, mainly in a town kind of in central Georgia, so kind of in the in the boonies, and he's driving around with his wife, and it's, uh, you know, you're in the country, so he hits a deer, and uh, the deer kind of goes off in the woods to presumably die or maybe heal itself or do something magical, and uh, his wife is just really upset, but the, they're okay, their car is okay, uh, if not worse for wear, and, and they get to the location with the, the trailer, and they're, you know, located near Joe Pesci, and, and they, they said his... Uh, the, the wife of Machio is just crying and crying, oh, we hit this deer, and I don't know what happened to him. And Joe Pesci is very sympathetic and says, oh, okay, I'll owe the deer. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's fine in the woods. These things happen here in the country. You all right? Okay, you want a bottle of wine? I can get you one from my trailer. Okay, here, go have it. Enjoy yourself. And, and so they're kind of getting uh -huh. settled, and uh, uh, Joe Pesci gets in the car, starts to drive off. All of a sudden, he slams on the brakes, goes in reverse, peeps his face out of the uh, the window of his car and screams, you fucking deer killer, and then drives <laughs> off. <laughs> and uh, that sounds very Joe. I can totally see Joe Pesci doing that. I've also heard he he's a big golfer, and if little kids are, are with their families, he'll go over to them in character as the character from Home Alone and says, I haven't robbed your house yet. 
<laughs> That's awesome. I feel like as he was driving away, he he realized that he didn't do anything like characteristic to his like screen persona. So he turned around, and was like, "Yeah, hey, you fucking deer killer." I, I yeah, I, I just admire him for basically stepping away from Hollywood when he was just getting a lot of shit roles and was really successful and had no one to answer to. And he'll pop up in things now and then. And yeah. he's done a few jazz albums, and he did jazz albums when he was younger as well. But uh, also a rap album, which uh, yes, yes, forget. as the in character well, as cousin Vinny. Yeah, in character as Vinny. Oh boy! Actually, it's, it's not just a, rap, although he does do a rap number. A, he also has that hey, cousin number. Vinny song. Yeah, it's uh, you know, make the most of a good hairpiece. What can you say? But. Next, so uh, next time on uh, Sequel Cast, you and friends, we will be wrapping up our look at uh, some films inspired by the works of Jay Ward. With, I believe it's from 2000, the uh, or 2001, something like that, the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie, starring Robert De Niro as fearless, as fearless leader. leader. Nice. Uh, it takes the Roger Rabbit approach of these characters in the real world. However, Rocky and Bullwinkle are animated um, by poor CG by today's standards, while the other characters are not. They're doing a jar jar. So, so you got Rene Russo as Natasha, and you have Jason Alexander as a very game Boris. Oh. Probably also, exactly who you want. If Ralph Macchio writes a book, would it be called Macho Man? Macchio, Macho Man? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and no, no, the karate adult. <laughs> the karate skid. Karate man. The forward by Ace Freely. Machio Machio Man. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of the uh, Falco number Macho Macho, which, like all Falcos, like a lot of Falco songs, throws English in there to, like, not great effect. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, there's equal guests, you and friends. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Macho Macho Man Alex Randy Savage IPPI reporting Same. for UD Esquire. Same. Ah, so, yes, the uh, jumping up and down on one foot screaming technique. That's a very good defensive maneuver. <laughs> <laughs>